So Judges chapter 6. So about 10 years ago, I'm in a van, and I'm driving this van, and it's full of musical equipment. I'm pulling a trailer behind, and I'm driving actually right down in front of University Plaza here. I'm heading downtown, um, and all I want to do is turn around and run. Drive the car as van as far away from downtown as I can get because I had had this great idea. I'd started working at Second Baptist of the College Minister, and I came on just a few months before we had a little hand, hand like a small group of college students. And I decided, you know what? We're going to start a college worship service in a bar in downtown Springfield. Great idea, right? I mean, that's just wonderful idea. We're going to rent out this thing. We're going to, we're going to close it down. We're going to start this, this thing. We're going to call it the vine and it's going to be great. And all these college students are going to come. And we, I kind of announced that back in the spring, all summer we're planning. And then it didn't really hit me until I'm driving there. What a stupid idea that was. And I remember now, like it was yesterday, I remember I was right in front of the university plaza here and just this wave of panic comes over me like what have you gotten yourself into you're getting ready to make a fool out of yourself because it's going to be you and about four other people with all this equipment in this place in downtown Springfield and maybe some of you've been in a situation like that where all you want to do you realize what you've gotten yourself into and all you want to do is run well, today, Judges chapter 6, we're going to find a guy who's going to be in that very same situation. Judges has been, I don't know if you can tell, like I've really enjoyed Judges. Can you tell that? Like I get a little giddy with the stories up here. We don't get a tent peg through a temple today, but we have a great story, uh, a guy named Gideon. We're going to jump into him. It's actually going to be a two-part. Uh, we're going to kind of tell the pre-story this week, and then next week's when all the, uh, the fun stuff goes down with the battle. Um, Judges chapter 6, and if Gideon's going to find himself in a place where all he wants to do is run. Let's, let's look at it. Verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and, be, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. So Israel's hiding in these caves in the mountains. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites, gosh, Amalekites, I think there's a niner in there somewhere, and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. So we have a little bit different situation. If you remember in Judges, we've been talking about the idea of cycles. And if you'll throw that graphic up on this, that, that illustration up on the screen. And kind of what the cycle is of Israel is God has promised them, I'll be your God, I'll protect you, follow me. That's his thing, just follow me. And what would happen is the people would rebel against God. They would start serving idols. And so God would allow, God would get angry because of their sin. And then he would allow oppression by their enemies. And each enemy has been different. The oppression has looked different. And this week we have the Midianites and a little coalition of nations that are oppressing Israel. And, and we're going to follow. You'll see the same cycle through every story we're in the book of Judges. The same cycle is called, is, 
is kind of carried out. And so God, because, because Israel has walked away from again, God has allowed these Midianites to come in and take over. Now, this is a different type of, uh, of oppression. And so what would happen? These Midianites were wanderers. They were herdsmen. They're nomadic people, and they've just wandered around the desert, but what they started to do, because they knew Israel could not stop them, is every year during the harvest times, which was twice a year, they would show up, okay? And so this is a fertile area of land, and what would happen, a couple times a year, the rivers would flood in this area, and the rivers would flood, and they would flood the plains, and all kinds of organic material from the rivers would would be spread out into the fields, the waters would go down, and you're left with this very fertile soil. And that's what the Israelites are planting their, planting their crops in. And so let's put ourselves in the place of Israelites. Every year we get ready to plant our crops. Let's say it's wheat. And we plant that and we watch it grow all summer long. And just about the time when it's time to harvest our crops, here we see this in the distance, this cloud way off in the desert, coming towards us, and we realize that cloud is the Midianites. And they know exactly when to come. They know when harvest time is. And this cloud gets closer, and we realize it is a big group of Midianites with a couple other nations, and they are coming to raid our fields. Now, Israel, not being strong, can't protect themselves. All they can do is run. If you resist, they will kill you. And after seven years, the cumulative effect of these invasions during the harvest time are devastating for Israel. Think about it. There's no supermarkets to go to, right? I have a garden at my house. If my garden doesn't work out, guess what? Hy-Vee's right down the road. Their livelihood is in the field. And every harvest time for seven years, this group of Midianites have come and they've just taken whatever they wanted. And not just the, the, the grain, they take horses, cows, ox, whatever they want. And all Israel can do is run. There's no United Nations for them to appeal to. There's no higher council saying Midianites. No, that's not good. No, it is Israel on their own against an enemy that they cannot stop who is wiping them clean. Imagine being a parent, being an Israelite parent and watching your little kids get thinner and thinner and thinner because you can't feed them. That's what's happening here. So you have God's chosen people, right? Who he said, this is your land. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's a fertile land. It's yours. And they're hiding in caves because they're too afraid to face the Midianites. Verse six. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. I mean, they're to the point where their existence is in question. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And we see this every time in the cycle. Israel will be, will be oppressed. And sometimes it takes 20 years, 30 years. Now it's, it's only took seven this time. But eventually they're like, okay, we need some help here. And so they, were, they cried out to God, God, come help us, come save us. One of the phrases that I use a lot um, that I've seen play out is the idea that brokenness precedes redemption. Israel is a strong people, and it took seven years of them almost getting where they cannot survive for them to be broken enough to cry out to God. 
one of the things I've seen in the lives of people as I've worked with them, it's often um, tragedy after tragedy after tragedy has to happen in their life before they finally cry out and say, okay, God, I need help. I can't do this any longer. Well, Israel's broken. But the problem is, and we'll see this every week, they're not broken because they've turned against God. They're broken because they don't have food. It has nothing to do with their desire for God. It just has to do with like, we need help. And so Israel's suffering here, but and for us, like unless our suffering leads to repentance and turning back to God, it has no lasting good. So unless our turning back to God, crying out to God, comes from this desire to know him and lean into him, it doesn't help us. We're just trying to escape pain, and ultimately that's what Israel is doing. Verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet. Now, we don't know who this prophet is, and so Israel's cried out, God help us, and God does not immediately deliver them like he has in some of these other chapters. Now, we don't know how long. Was it a month? Was it a year? I don't know, but they cry out to God, God help us. God sends a prophet, this person that's going to tell them what God wants. We don't know who this prophet is. And this prophet says to Israel, thus says the Lord, in verse 8, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. Like you were slaves in Egypt, and I brought you out of that. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. So God straight up bust them. He calls them on. He's like, listen, the reason this is happening is because you have walked away from me. Now, I'm going to bring this in. As modern readers of this story, one of the things that we have to be careful is we can't any hardship in our life, we can't just assume, oh, it's because I've sinned, just like Israel. That's why this hardship is there. We can't automatically make that assumption. But in this case, this is, this is why they're in trouble. God calls them out. It's because you've walked away from me. Now, every hardship in my life doesn't mean that I've sinned and God's angry at me. However, a good discipline in our lives is when hardships, when trouble is there to kind of take a step back and evaluate and ask myself, could this be related to some sort of disobedience? Could this be related to some sort of sin that I'm in and now I'm facing the consequences of that? So we don't automatically assume, well, God's doing this. He's against me. I've messed up. I've sinned. That's not necessarily always the case. However, it's a good practice to ask those questions. So Israel has finally cried out to God. It's become very clear that they cannot save themselves. They're going to have to have some help. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord. Notice we see every week, and we see it in verse 11. When Israel cries out, it always begins with then God takes action. Once you see that, this is not Israel saving themselves. This is God saving Israel. God's going to take action. When you cry out to God, it's not you saving yourself. It's God taking action in your life. The work is always God's. Now the angel of the Lord came and said under the terebinth in Ophrah, which belongs to Joash the Abazarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Okay, and so we're introduced to this character. It says the angel of the Lord. And so what this is, is God has sent down this messenger, this angel. Now, some theologians believe it's just an angel. Some theologians believe it's actually Jesus there talking to Gideon. But this, I want you to picture this Brad, Brad Pitt looking character coming down as, as, as uh, Gideon is there. And we find Gideon, who's going to be our hero of this story. And when we find him, he doesn't look much like a hero because here's what he is doing. He's hiding. We learn, we get this picture. So this angel comes up to him, whoever this angel of the Lord is, and says to him, hey, uh, Gideon, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And where we find Gideon is he's in a wine press beating out grain. Now, we could real quickly read over that, like, okay, cool. Here is why he's in a wine press. Now, in those days, when, so they would, they would have their wheat. And if you've ever seen this, I actually watched it on YouTube this week because I wanted to learn how, to, how they did this. But they would harvest their wheat, and they would have these big stalks with these heads of grain. And they would take their wheat, and they put them out on this big wooden surface, a lot of times up at the top of a hill where the wind was. And they, you have these big stalks with these wheat heads at the top, and then they would beat those wheat heads with hammers, mallets, sometimes they use cattle, ox, anything. And so as they would beat that, the, the kernels of wheat would fall off. And then the wind, kind of the, all the stems and all that would blow away and you'd be left in this wooden floor with a bunch of grain. And that's how they got their grain to make bread, right? And so we find Gideon doing this. However, he's not doing it in the place where they normally do. Why? He's afraid. He knows the Midianites, it's harvest time. He knows the Midianites are on their way. The last thing you're going to do if you're, if you're an occupied nation is you're going to take your, your, all your groceries and put them up on the top of the hill and start beating hammers on wooden mallets saying, hey, here I am, come take it. So our hero is hiding, and he's hiding in a wine press. A wine press would have been, uh, think about the size of a table or one of these rugs. It would have been a cement or some type of stone, um, stone uh, I don't know what, yeah, thing that was built into the, uh, into the ground, right? And so what they would do is they would take all their, their grapes and they would mash those inside this wine press and it would flow out so they could make their wine or Welch's grape juice, whichever you believe, uh, so they could make their wine. And so we find, we find him in this wine press hammering out this grain. He's underneath the ground where no one can see him. He's trying to be as quiet as he can. But look what this angel says to him. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I wonder if he said it with a straight face. Because right now, Gideon looks like anything but a mighty man of valor. And we're going to get to this as we get going in the story what this angel, whoever this is, is doing to, to Gideon, he's, he's going to attack his identity. He's going to deal with his identity because we tend to live out what we believe our identity is. So he could say, hey, Gideon, you little weak person that's hiding. But the problem is this angel knows, even though that's what he's doing, that's not his identity as a matter of fact, that he's been chosen by God to be this mighty warrior to deliver the people. And this angel goes after his identity. One of the things I see um, 
in church a lot as I talk to people. I call it false humility and this idea of like, I can't do anything. Well, I know you can do that. You can get up and speak or you can do this, but I just, I just can't, I just can't do anything. And that would appear as this very, you know, humble, oh, I just, I realize my weakness. But here's what it is. It's really pride. Because the first line in that sentence is I. So just like if I got up and said, I'm the most successful, I can do whatever I want, I can do everything I put my mind to, you'd be like, dude, that guy's pride. Why? Because it's all about me. To say, well, I can't do that, is still Pride. It's just this false humility. It's still all about me. And so this angel is going to go right after who Gideon believes he is. Verse 13, and Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? That's a good question. And where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recount to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So Gideon, like, there's a moment of honesty here. He's like, okay, wait a second. You call me this man of valor, and you say that God has these plans for me. Wait a second. Why is this happening? And Gideon's thinking, like, my grandpa told me stories of beating this army in a tent peg through a guy's head. Where's that? My great-great-grandpa told my grandpa of being led out through Egypt in captivity. And Where's that, God? Why would this happen? And it's a question that many of us have asked. God, do you really care about me? And if so, why? And that's the very question that Gideon's going to ask. What he doesn't realize is this very um, chastisement, this very suffering that he's experienced is a gift of God to him. Now, wait a second. A gift of God? People stealing your cross for seven years? Really? Thanks, God. Like, if that's your God, no thanks. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, said this, God does not permit his children to sin successfully. See, God's wrath would have been to let Israel do whatever they wanted and completely walk away from him. That would have been God's wrath. But God's love, knowing that Israel's a little stubborn, in God's love, he says, you know what? I'm going to let some things happen to them so they come to realize that they need me. And this very discipline, this very strain that Gideon's experienced, this very reason he'd hide is actually this gift of God because God loves him. Parents, you do the same thing with your kids. How many of you in your discipline, your kids, your kids are like, you know what, Dad? I appreciate that you love me enough to discipline me. Anyone ever had that conversation? Your kids may be a little more holy than mine, right? Why, Dad? Because I love you. And that's exactly what's going on. See, God uses trials, he uses discipline in our life to make us who he desires us to be. Now me, like I want things easy. And I don't want trials. 
I don't, need, I don't need hard times. Like, God, come on, God, I don't need that. But here's what happens when I don't have those times. You know what I start to think? I got this. I don't need God. I can lead a church. No big deal. But this suffering is actually a gift of God out of his love that Israel might turn back to him. If you've, uh, if you've been with me several years, several years, you've heard me told this story before, but when Ellie was like four years old, she had a habit of eating things off the counter when I was cooking. So I cook all the time in her house and I'd be making, making food and, and chopping up vegetables and she would just come by and like pluck something, and put it in her mouth and eat it. And it was driving me nuts, right? Because I'm kind of precise and like I need to put that where it goes. And so one time I watch her and I'm cutting up jalapenos. She walks by, she grabs one and walks away. And I was like, all right, let's see how this goes down. And uh, she, you know, she takes it and eats it and just, ah, you know, crying and we're getting milk, we're pouring it down her throat and all this stuff, right? Because some lessons are best learned the hard way. Well, two nights ago, I was cooking. I was chopped up a bunch of vegetables inside, went out to my green aid to get it going, get the fire going. I come back in, and I see Ellie sitting on the couch. She has a, I promise you, a piece of bread glued to her face, holding a glass of milk, sweating. And as soon as I walked in the door, we made eye contact, and she gets this little, like, you know, like this, yep. And I was like, again, really? Yeah, and I was like, Ellie, you know, sometimes you just got to learn things the hard way again. And that's exactly what God's doing with Israel. He sees him grab the jalapeno, and he's like, all right, you think that's what you want? Have it. But it's out of his love, out of his love that he does that. Verse 14. So Gideon asked why, and the Lord turned him and said, Go in this might of yours. Again, might of yours? Like, he's hiding. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I love this. And so he says him again, in this might of yours, again, he, this angel is speaking to Gideon's identity, even though he does not realize his identity. All he sees is this, this kid, and we don't know how old he is, but I picture him as this kind of teenager looking guy with pimples all over him. Like that's all he sees. And this angel says, no, in this might of yours, you're actually going to go do this thing. And Gideon is having an identity crisis here. He doesn't understand who he is, his identity, but that's because he doesn't understand who God is. See, every identity crisis is ultimately a God crisis in a misviewing of who God is. Gideon has a small view of himself because he has a small view of God. The reason that every single week when we sing, we start with a song about the glory of God the reason is that we would have a high view of God. Because as Christians, we don't believe our identity is in something we can accomplish on our own. We believe our identity is who God is. And so if I can have a high view of who God is, and then I understand that that God has empowered me through the Holy Spirit, then, then I can start to have a proper view of who I am hidden underneath this God. Now, not who I am on my own outside of this God, a high view of God, me, the Bible says I'm hidden in Christ. 
When God sees me, he sees Jesus. That means I have this identity of God. If I have a big view of God, I will have a proper view of myself. Which we come to the question in Hill City, do we have a healthy view of God? Do we have, do we have a healthy fear of God? When I don't say fear, and when I say fear, I don't mean like hiding in the corner because you're afraid of who this God person is. When I say fear, I mean this respect, this reverence for and this desire to please. Is if we don't fear God, we don't have this reverence for God, if we don't understand who he is, if we don't fear him, we won't worship him. If we don't worship him, we're not going to serve him. See, everything starts with how I see God. How do you see God? Do you have this view of this God that just kind of is up there and just doesn't really care about disobedience and never punishes disobedience and never just kind of, do you have this view of God as just kind of a buddy, kind of a, a best friend, a man upstairs type of guy? Do you, have, do you have this view of God that he's totally fine with just you doing whatever you want down here? This view of God that he doesn't, he doesn't call me to give myself away like Jesus came and gave himself away. And Paul says, like, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I just keep giving him myself. But God doesn't want that for me. You have a view of God that he, he wants us to be safe and he never wants us to step out and step into faith. That he just likes our nice little comfortable American dream 401k life. See, everything starts with how we view God. I told you a couple weeks ago, we have a couple of very brave people. Um, Molly Brewer and Michael um, are uh, raising support to come on staff at our church. We can't hire them. We can't afford to hire them yet. And so I approached both of them and I was like, hey, I'm going to ask you to think about something. I'm going to ask you to raise support on your own to come on staff at our church. And it's funny, both of them, it was kind of a situation like this. They both looked at me like, oh, and I'm going to show you Michael. We did a little bit, bit interview with him this week. I want you to hear, hear just a, a couple minutes from him. But Michael's in a unique situation. He has a family. He has kids to support. And now he's placed in a situation where he quits his job to raise support. because kind of this, He's kind of in this no man's land right now. I'm trying to raise support on his own so he can come on staff at our church. I want you to hear his story briefly. You can play the video. I was in a place where... I was struggling with my identity, my purpose, and my career, and uh, I was able to get coffee with our pastor, tell him I felt called to ministry, and you know, ask what that looked like. About a month later, announced that we're planning Hill City Church, and part of that advice that he gave me was, let's jump in and serve wherever I can. This was a huge opportunity for me to serve in ways and get involved with church that I hadn't before. So since I started, I've helped develop the website, I've helped develop the Hill City Kids check-in. A lot of the stuff that's in the background uh, that kind of makes the Sunday morning services go smoother and provide opportunities for our ministry team leaders to, to do their jobs well. So Daniel asked me out to lunch and asked me if I'd be willing to come on staff full-time uh, and leave my job that I've been working at to do this. I was terrified, but I was immediately sold on it. I was so excited. I felt like I was answering my prayer to, you know, serve him in ministry. Like this was the opportunity I've been looking for. So after the initial shock of agreeing to join the ministry team, 
uh, it hit me. I had a family to support. We just had a baby. We have, you know, mortgage, all those normal things. And the weight of that started to kind of bear down on me. And I was a little scared, but with the support of my wife, who's just been amazing, we both agreed that same day that this was what God had for us. So the support raising process has been pretty incredible actually the, the conversations I have with people getting to share about, about Hill City and what we're doing um, it's just so great I get excited every time I talk about it it's it's a little overwhelming it's a slow process but I love connecting with people and I love getting to share what we're doing it's it's been phenomenal if you're interested in joining the team uh, you can email me I'd love to talk to you more about it So at first he's like, sure. And then he says, the weight hit him. Now with the small view of God, that weight becomes too much. But with the big view of God, it's like, okay, I feel the weight, but I'm trusting. Now here's what I got to ask us, Hill City. Have you ever felt the weight? Have you ever felt the weight of stepping into something where, you're, where you kind of doubted can I do this? And where you needed God's help. See, it's very possible in, in the great country we live in, with all the security and the service and all that, just kind of do our thing our whole life and never really step into this weight of, whoa, what did I just agree to? And that's exactly what Gideon is feeling right now. One of the reasons that we preach the gospel so much to you here at Hill City, we do this together. It's not just that you would understand your standing with God, that you're counted righteous. It's that you would understand that you're also, because of your standing with God, that you are gifted now with the Holy Spirit and you were sent out with his power to bring good around us, the flourishing of our city. See, everything comes with a gospel perspective. If I have a big view of God and who God is, and I understand who I am, I'm this broken person, but who's trusting by faith in Christ and now empowered by him, and I can step in there and I can feel that weight. Because I understand at the end of the day, God's got this. There's one thing I fear, and I use that word fear. There's one thing I fear it's that under my leadership, the people of Hill City would be passive recipients of ministry instead of active participants. One of my biggest fears. I don't care how many people show up. I don't check attendance. I just don't really care about all that stuff. One of my greatest fears, though, is that we'd have one day a, a big group of people out here that are just every week coming and hearing what me or whoever has to say because that's not the Christian life. And that comes from a very small view of God. That as believers in Christ, you are equipped with the Holy Spirit and God has placed you in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood. He's placed you to bring shalom, the flourishing of those around you. He's placed you to make disciples. One of my biggest fears as we create a church was just like, yeah, I go. I come when we have all these people out here that are gifted and talented who got us placed 
and a place of influence to make much of him. But Gideon is content, threshing grain, hiding from the world instead of engaging it. So I'm talking to Christians here. Not, if, you're, if you're a non-Christian, you just kind of came checking this out. I'm glad you're here. I'm talking to Christians here. Are you hiding in your wine press, your home, your office? Are you hiding from this world just hoping it doesn't come against you, are you out engaging and making difference? Are you feeding those that don't have food? Are you adopting orphans? Are you taking care of the sick? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you investing? Are you loving? Are you bringing truth to brokenness? Guys, around your workplace, there's brokenness everywhere. Are you speaking into that? Are you hiding in the wine press? One of my desires and the reason we're doing this discipleship conference in a few weeks is my desire is to equip you guys and for some of you for the first time ever to get a taste of what it feels like to get in the game. So many believers are on the sidelines just kind of watching things like, well, that's cool for you. And my biggest desire is you get in the game and see what it's like to walk with someone as they are learning what the gospel is. Two days ago, and we have a new office at Hill City, which that's where that video was shot. Um, we're going to invite a lot of you guys down in a few weeks for that to come check it out. But I met a couple of football guys there that I'm discipling. And so we're going through this little, I call it the green book. It's this little discipleship book we go through. And that's what we're going to train you on in the discipleship conference. And I met with these two guys, these two college guys. And uh, we met for like an hour talking through things. And I could tell like, dude, they were getting this. And it was really making a difference in their life. And so we get done and they go outside. And uh, a few of us are in the office. And we sit there and talk for like 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, then we're, we decided to go out to eat lunch, this group that's in the office. And I walk out, and these two football guys are sitting. We have this little pavilion outside, and they're sitting there. And they look like they just got done working out. I mean, they're like, like this, just bent over. I was like, guys, what are you doing? And one of them looks at me, man, I grew, I grew up in church. And all I ever knew was the rules of what not to do. And today just blew me away. And they've been sitting there for 15 minutes just talking about how much the gospel is starting to change things in their perspective. And we just kind of sat down with them, and they looked exhausted. And I walked away from that thinking, this is why I do what I do. This is why. That's why I invest time with those guys. That's why I invest in this, this time of just watching the gospel explode their worldview. It's one of the coolest things you can imagine. And you're equipped to do it. You're called to do it. Mighty men and women of valor. My prayer for you is you get in the game. And we'll teach you how. But you'd step up and you get in the game. Ephesians 2.10, God says he has good works for us to do. See, for whatever reason, the church I grew up in, it was all about not sinning. The Christian life was about don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It was about not sinning. And I never heard this message of, no, we actually have this job, this mission to do. And as a driven kind of guy, I need something. I need a mission to go to. May we have a bigger view of God and to see the mission he's called for us. And may that call, it, when call us to get in the game. Verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you will strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to them, I now have found favor in your eyes. 
He's starting to come around to this. Gideon is. He says, now show me a sign. It's you who speak with me. Please don't depart from me here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay and you return. So our young leader is starting to warm up the idea that God could be using him, but he's not convinced yet. So in verses 19 through 21, we won't read it for time. He goes into his house and he gets an offering. He gets food and, and bread and he brings it out. And this angel of the Lord touches it and it all turns to fire and just disintegrates. He's like, whoa, this guy's for real, right? And so verse 22, then Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon's like, Oh my gosh, this is God. I'm going to die. Verse 24, Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to Abazarites. So God's called Gideon to do this, and Gideon's like, okay, i got to make sure that you're not just some random Brad Pitt-looking Pitt guy that just showed up and told me to go fight this battle. I'm going to get my head cut off. So he's like, I'll be right back. Goes to his house, gets these bread and meat, brings it out, and says, okay, do something with it. The angel goes, bam, it goes into fire. He's like, okay, yeah, I know you're not just Brad Pitt. Verse 25, that night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you have cut down. This has been quite a day for Gideon. God's called him, said, you go do this. He's like, all right, I'll be back. Let me get a few pieces of food. Okay, boom. And God and the Lord and this angel says, okay, now here's what you need to do. You know that idol that your town has out in the middle of the town square, that big thing? Yeah, I want you to go tonight and cut it down. And I want you to get your father's bull. Remember the oppression that they're under. That's probably a very prized animal. And I want you to kill it as a sacrifice to God. This is getting real. And what we see here is, and, and we see this a lot in, in my life and, and all through the Bible, is Gideon has this testing privately where he has to go in and bring out food and this angel does it. And now God's going to test him in kind of his, his own little territory, his own town. And he's going to have to be obedient in his own town. And he's got to come against his father. He's got to kill his father's bull. I mean, this is a big deal. Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, can you blame him? Right? Think about this. They are worshiping this idol. This is a superstitious nation. This is ancient world. They are superstitious about everything. When they walk out the next morning and see that their idol has been cut down, here's what they're thinking. The gods are going to kill us. The gods are against him. God has just asked him to go against his father, kill a bull, cut it down, cut down the, the idol, and Gideon's like, all right, but I'm doing it at night. Verse 28, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the asher beside it was cut down. The second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. 
Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. This is a capital offense. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. So God has just tested Gideon again and says, all right, I'm going to prepare you to do something big here. But first, there's a little thing you got to do kind of privately. Bring this offering of food, which still would have been costly to him. Next, we're going to make it a little bit more difficult. Now you're going to do it in front of your countrymen, and you're going to have to tear down this altar. And God is starting to build this man into who he wants him to be. So his first act of obedience happens in private. Next, it happens in his home. And that's way before he's ever going to do something publicly. And guess what? God will do the same thing in your life. He'll bring you to obedience in small things. Maybe it's your battle against sin. He'll, he'll call you again. Hey, let's deal with this. And as you start to have victory there, he's going to call you to bigger things and bigger things and bigger things. Matthew says when we're faithful with small things, God gives us and trusts us with bigger things. Verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together. Must be harvest time. Here they come. They're going to come again. They're going to strip Israel of all their food. And they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So they're in, they're in Israel territory now. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Again, notice it's God that empowers. Gideon did not empower himself. And he sounded the trumpet, and the Abezerites are called out to follow. And he sent messengers through Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they went to meet him there. So just like last week, Gideon goes, and he raises an army. Now, I told you last week, this very act of raising an army, Gideon has just put his head on the, ten most wanted, uh, the top of the most wanted list in that day. Not only could he be killed, but he, if he's captured, he will be tortured and probably his whole family also. This is big business. So Gideon raises an army. We find out later it's about 32,000 men that respond. So 32,000 brave men respond and say, all right, we're going to go defeat these Amicali, or these, yeah, these Mennonites underneath uh, with, with Gideon as our leader. Now, here's what we find out later, is we find out that this army has 135,000 people. So you have Gideon and his little band of 35,000 against 135,000 of this army. And we learn another thing about this 135,000 member army is they have cavalry. And the cavalry is not horses, it's camels. Now you may laugh, camels. If you're fighting in the desert, Think of the tactical advantage of having a cavalry of camels, right? Last week, we looked at a group that had cavalry with, with chariots, horses pulling chariots. Horses can only go so far. We learned last week, chariots get bogged down in the mud. Camels can go up to 100 miles in the desert without taking a break. Like, this is a big deal that they have camels, and they have the, definitely have the strategic advantage over Israel. Um, in the Persian armies, when they're fighting Alexander the Great, they used elephants, as kind of their cavalry. Again, thinking about looking across the battlefield, and there comes an elephant charging at you with a bunch of people on with bows. Yeah, I'm running, right? They have these camels of cavalry. So these Jews are outnumbered, they're outmaneuvered, but God has promised a victory. 
And Gideon is still having identity crisis. He has enough faith to raise an army, but there's still something inside of him that says, I just want to run. God, did you really call me to do this? I don't know anything about warfare. I've never fought a battle. You want me to lead an army of 35,000 men? Verse 36, wrap up. And Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. So Gideon's like, all right, you got to show me one more time, God. Just one more time. Give me a sign. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So he's going to put this fleece out and he's going to ask God to, um, to, to give him another sign. Verse 38, it was so. He rose the next early morning and squeezed the fleece. He wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. So, so God's like, all right, done. So the ground's dry, the fleece is wet. This is awesome. Then Gideon said to God, don't get mad at me, but just one more time, right? This time, just in case there was some fluke of nature, this time, please let me test just once more the fleece. Please let it be dry in the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God said it was so, and it happened again. I ask you at the beginning of the message, you ever got to that place, and you said, how did I get here? And all you want to do is run. That's exactly where Gideon is. God has just now confirmed twice, Gideon, you ain't getting out of this. You're the one that has to do it. So I'm in the van right out front, and I'm pulling all this equipment to this college thing, and I'm thinking all I want to do is turn around and run. Well, I didn't, and I ended up going, and we had like 100 kids show up that night. I don't know where they came from. A year later, I had another dumb idea. I said, I know what. We'll take this 100 kids, and we're going to do our first big worship service of the school year. We're going to do it in the Bear Paw, which is right in the middle of campus outside. That sounds like a great idea. And we planned it, and about 45 minutes before, this panic attack hit me like, what are you doing? You're going to bring your little group of 100 kids out in the middle of this huge thing. You're going to look like, I mean, it's like this huge, you know, bare ground. There's going to be 100 of you sitting there, kind of like goobers. You're going to do this thing. What are you thinking? 500 kids showed up. Now, here's the flaw in my thinking. I don't know if you caught it. You know who it was about? Me. It was about what I could do, but then, if you caught it, here's what it was also about, whether I would be, look like a fool or not. It was all about me. I mean, I wanted college kids to be there because I wanted to pour in and I wanted to see them come to Christ, but ultimately my number one concern was, am I going to look like an idiot? But there's no getting out of it for Gideon. He knows what he has to do. And he feels the weight. Hill City, do you feel the weight anywhere in your life? Of being in that place where you're like, God, all I want to do is turn and run right now, but I know you've called me to this. From the day we started Hill City, one of the things we said is we always want to be leaning forward in faith. Now, there's a line of faith in stupid. 
but we always want to be leaning forward. So we have this big parent conference that we're planning this fall I've talking about. We have a goal of 200 parents coming and we're, we're budget-wise, we're planning on that. And it's, it costs money, so that, you know, our money's recouped if we get that many people. We have no idea. But as our group met and we talked about this, we said we'd rather lean in and think big than just hope that 20 people show up. And we're feeling the weight. We have the two people raising support to come on staff at our church. We're a growing church with many, in, in about a month, this whole section will be filled with college students, by the way. We're a growing church that's young, that has a lot of people, but not very much money. We can't afford to hire staff, but we have to, or we're going to sink. So the, these two are raising support to come on staff. Michael Robinson is going to come on staff as a pastor. We're, we're, we're going to pay him out of Hill City. We can't afford it yet. And we feel the weight. And we're leaning forward and we're trusting. Now, I may have to get a job in a year and go work at Buffalo Wild Wings and serve tables and come here and preach on Sunday. I'm okay with that. I can do it. But we're feeling the weight. Hill City, in your life, are you feeling the weight anywhere? That I know God has called me to this, or I'm passionate about this, or about this person, but I just don't think I can do it. My prayer is that you would see and hear God say to you, Almighty man of valor, Almighty woman of valor. As we receive communion this morning, this practice, it reminds us of our identity. It reminds us our identity is that we stand righteous in God's eyes because of Jesus' death on the cross, but also our identity as mighty people of valor. So as you receive communion this morning, remind yourself, in Christ, I'm mighty. And God has called me to do mighty things. Let's pray together.